It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, Buzz Killers. You know, I've never been in this sort of situation before. And then that situation is I'm interviewing someone who does what I'm supposed to do much better than I do. <laughs> and that, of course, is Kate Messner, who's written a series of great books called History Smashers, in which she smashes myths about various aspects of history. And very, very fortunately for me, and more fortunately for you, she's on the line via the internet. Hello, Kate. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me. It's a joy to be joining you. Well, you know, I'm jealous and angry and happy all at the same time, because as we were saying before we started recording, you know, these books are they're great. They're made for a younger audience, I guess middle school, really, but they're very, very solid. And in addition to having a sort of graphic novel element and lots of pictures, a lot of lots of uh, sort of graphs and stuff like that, there's a great deal of text. And, you know, this is serious stuff. This isn't just a cartoon version of history myth-busting. Before we start talking about them, what made you decide to, to choose this route? Was it because your intended audience wouldn't want just pictures, they'd want a mixture? Or was there something else involved? Yeah, I mean, for starters, I think a lot of history books that we've had for kids in the past have talked down to kids, and also not really addressed history, you know, on their level and, and have been honest about it, to be perfectly frank. So this series actually grew out of another series that I, I've done a fictional series, I actually do a, a series of historical adventures called the Ranger in Time books. Mm -hmm. And these are chapter books about a time traveling search and rescue dog. So they are historical fiction, but all the, the history in them is, is you know, 100% accurate. And in each of those Ranger in Time books, there's an author's note that actually, you know, is more of a nonfiction overview of the event and talks a little bit more about the, the events in the story and how they tie into history. And I was hearing a lot of interest when those books were being published from teachers and librarians and families wanting more of what was in the author's note, mm -hmm. you know, wanting more of, a, a, you know, whole books that would be accessible to young readers that would explain history to kids in that same frank, friendly, conversational voice. And they also wanted stories that many history books have, you know, historically omitted. You know, let's face it, our history is not always comfortable mm. to talk about. It's not always fun to talk about. And as a result of that, I think some of the history that we've taught kids over the years has leaned more on patriotic myths than what really happened, or certainly at the very least has omitted a lot. And so these books, the goal was to really remedy that, was to, to write a series of books that were 
fun to read. And that's where the illustrations and the photographs and graphs and the, the comic elements come in, but also really respectful of young readers in trusting them to handle the complexities of history. And I think upper elementary school readers, you know, our fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh and eighth graders for whom the series is intended really are are ready to wrestle with that and have those conversations. And the response from that age group has been just incredible. Yes, I'm so glad to hear that because, you know, one of the things we started this show a thousand years ago, and I thought no one will want serious history. They'll want, you know, entertainment. So we got comedians. We had a different format. We tried. And people universally responded and say no, said no, 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 no. We want the real stuff. And so we went in the other direction, and it's just proved to be more popular. I think this shows that people, even kids, don't want dumbing down. Oh, for sure. It's interesting. You know, when um, when this series was just about to launch, it was right before, you know, the, the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. These books have been coming out since 2020. And literally the last school visit that I did, I spend a lot of time visiting schools, talking with kids about books and reading and writing. Literally the last school visit I did in March of 2020 was at this elementary school in a you know small town in Vermont. And I was having lunch with a group of second graders. And one of the boys was telling me how much he loved reading picture book biographies biographies of historical figures. Right, right. And I said, oh, there's one that I really love. I bet you'd really like. My friend Gwendolyn Hooks wrote this book called Ona Judge Outwits the Washingtons. And it's about a woman who was enslaved by George Washington who escaped and never got caught, even though he spent pretty much the rest of his life trying to track her down and bringing her back to slavery without making too much of a fuss. And this kid looked at me, this is a second grader, and he said, wait, what? George Washington had slaves? Yeah, yeah. And I said, yeah, he he did. He enslaved hundreds of people on his plantation in Virginia, both before he was president and while he was president. And the kid said, I thought George Washington was a good guy. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, you know, we hear a lot of stories about Washington. It is true that he led the Continental Army during the American Revolution. It is true that he was America's first president. And it is also true that he enslaved people on his plantation. All of those things are true. And the kid sat for a minute and he nodded and he said, huh. And then he looked at his library and he's like, can you get that book if you don't already have it? (laughs) She said, yep, I've already written it down. You know, kids are very good at holding all these contradictions in their minds, right? They understand that more than one thing can be true, which is really one of the goals of this series is to respect kids with the complexities of history. Yes, and I just wish that it had come out when the Buzzlings were younger because the books are just fantastic. And and we should tell the Buzzkillers, you know, I'm looking at the stack on my desk. There's the Mayflower. These are individual volumes and they're substantial volumes. They're not little thin graphic novels. The Mayflower, Pearl Harbor, the Underground Railroad, the American Revolution, Plagues, Women's Rights, and... And then this summer we have History Smashers, Christopher Columbus and the Taino People, which is co-authored with Dr. Jose Barreo, who is a Taino elder and scholar and historian who used to work with the Smithsonian Museum of the American Indian. So super excited for this one. It's a book educators have been asking for ever since we launched the series. Well, that's great. And I can't wait for that that book to come out. And we'll, of course, call, uh, call you right back to get you back on the show. But today, I was hoping that maybe we would go ahead and focus on one of these 
books as a way to show people what you do and also to talk about these myths. And that is the one I, that we haven't mentioned, the History Smashers volume on the Titanic. And b- by the way, Buzzkillers, your, your graphic artist is absolutely perfect. The, the, the cover has, which will be on the Buzzkill Bookshop, the, the cover has the Titanic going down and people in lifeboats. And one of the per- person, one of the people in the lifeboats is saying, it totally didn't happen this way. And <laughs> it's just perfect and it's perfectly pitched for, for that age group. So the Titanic, as we know, is the Titanic story is full of myths, uh, partly because of the famous movie, A Night to Remember. But first of all, why did you choose the Titanic as one of the books? After all, it is a tragedy. Did you worry that, for instance, this might be seen as being flippant or anything like that? Or is it because there are the, the myths about it are so bad? Well, a couple reasons. First of all, the Titanic is one of those stories from history that is, you know, shrouded in lots and lots of myths. Uh, but the other thing is, Kids are obsessed with the Titanic. I went through a period, you know, when I was nine and 10 and 11 years old, where I was completely obsessed with the Titanic. And I I loved that about being a kid. You could have those obsessions and you you could read exclusively about the Titanic for six months and then Mount St. Helens for six months and then dogs, you know? (laughs) Um, And so kids really connect with these. It's really funny when I, when I visit schools around the country and around the world, when I talk about this series, I put the covers up. I'm like, yeah, so we have one about this. We have one about Pearl Harbor and, and different pockets of the room of the auditorium erupt in applause, you know? So I, I see like, oh, there's my, ti- you know, that my Titanic group is over there and my World War II buffs are over here. But Titanic is for sure one of those topics that, that kids are fascinated by. It's, you know, and, you know, it's an epic tragedy. It's, you know, there's, there's a lot going on there. There's adventure, there's survival, there's disaster, there are a lot of personalities involved, which is interesting too. So it has all those elements. In addition, as you mentioned, all those myths swirling around it. Yes. And again, Buzzkills, this is a, this is substantial work. This is 180 pages of serious myth busting. Please, let's take these myths, maybe not one at a time, won't be able to do them all. But first of all, can you start us off with what you think is the biggest Titanic myth or your favorite in quotes. And again, I hate to say favorite because, of course, it is a tragedy, but there are amazingly interesting stories like the lucky pig and things like that that you address. Probably one of the most interesting myths about the Titanic is that People talked about how it was unsinkable and it was advertised as being an unsinkable ship and oh, it was supposed to be unsinkable. And nobody actually said that until it sank. Oh, right. <laughs> the truth. So, and this is one of those myths that's been perpetuated by the movies, right? There's a, there's a famous line in the movie that, that says, so this is the ship they say is unsinkable as the passengers are boarding. But that's actually not what people were talking about when the Titanic was built. It's not what people were interested in because it never occurred to anybody it might sink. They were exciting about, you know, the fancy dining rooms and the, you know, the the, the palm courts and all those things. There was never a promise that the ship was unsinkable. The White Star Line did advertise the Titanic as the largest and finest ship. And there was a brochure for the Titanic and the Olympic that mentioned the ships were designed to be unsinkable. But that was just like, you know, a line in the fine print. And it was something that newspapers picked up on much later 
after the Titanic actually sank. Uh, and that created the myth that, you know, this had been promised as an unsinkable ship. So that's probably the the biggest myth or the most common myth, I would say, surrounding the Titanic. Well, it's a good one to start with because that's, you know, it is before it launches. That's very interesting because, as is probably the case, I mean, I'm sure no one in, at White Star or any of the other companies thought, oh, we should advertise ships as unsinkable because that brings up the issue that ships actually do sink. I mean, you you don't, right. you don't want that that topic to rise up when you're advertising yeah, a fancy new ship. Yeah, it's not a good ad strategy, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> we don't want to even raise that that possibility. Well, what are some of the other early myths before the actual ship gets going, or as the ship as the people are boarding, or that that before the iceberg? I should say. What's interesting to me is that. The, sort of the, the the story of the Titanic, most of us, the story that we hear begins and ends with the iceberg, right? And it, it, you know, talks about how they were powering along and this iceberg came out of nowhere. It didn't come out of nowhere. There were all kinds of warnings. And what fascinated me, and this was something that I didn't know before I started researching this book, was the, the sheer number of warnings about the sea ice, about the icebergs. There were messages about the ice in the North Atlantic delivered to the deck of the Titanic. What's especially interesting to me is the radio room had gotten backed up because there were some there were some issues with the radio. The wireless system had gone down earlier in the day and so there was a backlog of passenger messages to be sent. And so the the wireless operator Jack Phillips was trying to get these messages sent. People wanted their notes sent out and he was trying to get caught up. So he kept setting aside messages about the warnings. So the urgent message that came in about an ice morning actually never made it to the bridge of the Titanic. And that night, like just hours before the shipwreck, just before 11 p.m., the Californian was a nearby ship that was already surrounded by ice, right? It was stuck. And they sent a message to the Titanic to warn them. And the wireless operator on the Titanic told the other ship's wireless operator to shut up because he was busy, literally shut up. And that was his response to that warning. It's just fascinating. He was busy trying to get those outgoing passengers messages and he didn't want incoming messages jamming things up. So that message, you know, about the Californian surrounded by ice, which was certainly a pretty dire warning mm. for the Titanic, never made it to the captain either. We should remind the bus killers that what you mean by these passenger messages is that it was really kind of fashionable to if you were on the Titanic, to send a telegram from the ship back to New York or to London and say, oh, we're on the ship and it's great and we're whining and dining and dancing and having a great time. Right. And these were largely people of means and status. And so that if they bugged the, if the, if bug the Titanic wireless operator, you know, send this out, do you know who I am sort of thing, yeah. he's going to exactly. sort of respond. But now, does the wireless operator, this is a terrible thing to phrase it this way, but does he get enough blame for this? I mean, is he the reason that the Titanic didn't swerve and move and set a course, a more southerly or southwardly, whatever the nautical term is, course? You know, I'm not ready to place all the blame on on uh, Jack Phillips' shoulders. Certainly, you know, it, it, this is one of those things that was a perfect storm, right? From this issue with the wireless system going down to tiny little things, 
there were supposed to be binoculars in the lookout cage. They weren't there. They were there when the ship left Belfast, but somebody moved the binoculars. Those binoculars that were supposed to be in the lookout cage might have helped somebody spot that iceberg. Who knows? It's just, it's one thing after another. So the ignored messages certainly didn't help the situation, but uh, it was, like I said, it was kind of a perfect storm of mishaps that helped lead to the disaster. Well, and that shows your readers, the kids, and also our listeners, you know, that things are complicated, that it's very rarely one person who does something good or bad or or whatever that causes a major historical event to happen. So what what For what, sure. what yeah. myths are there about the actual crash into the iceberg? It, it's interesting. The the Titanic sort of sideswiped the iceberg. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't realize that that, you know, they might think, oh, if you didn't crash head on into it, that's better. And it actually wasn't. So that's an interesting phenomenon too, right? If if the Titanic had hit the iceberg head on, a lot of engineers think, yeah, there would have been a lot of damage, but it probably wouldn't have gone down. It was that side swiping that allowed so many of the watertight compartments to be breached. And that's kind of an interesting phenomenon too, because kids don't think of it that way. They're like, oh, you know, they they did veer, right? They did eventually see that iceberg and try to not hit it right? Which you would think would be a good thing. And it may have actually been the thing that caused it to go down because, you know, like I said, the side swiping caused more of those those watertight compartments to be breached. Is that because it sort of creates a long gash rather yeah, than one, exactly. one head-on crash would? Right. Had, had they hit head-on, it certainly would have damaged the, the the front of the ship, the bow of the ship, but you, you know, and it would have stopped the Titanic. It may not have, have caused it to sink though, which is interesting, you know? Yeah, yeah. When the actual collision and sideswipe take place, of course, then everyone moves to, if you will, battle stations or emergency stations. The standard sort of story is that it's all chaos, that, you know, first-class passengers got into lifeboats and nobody else did that it was all women and children first and no men got in the lifeboats and some men dressed as women and all there are all sorts of stories about that can you tell us about the first you know few hours after the strike and what happens and what didn't happen and what's history and what's myth so it's 11:40 p.m. when the titanic actually hits the iceberg and at first there's a discussion about how big a deal is this right uh-huh. which is you know, the discussion you have when anything starts to go wrong and you're not quite sure yet if it's a a disaster or just if it's going to be expensive to fix, right? So initially, even the captain, when they first hit the iceberg, the captain thought everything was probably going to be okay, right? About 10 minutes after they hit the iceberg, he actually sent a message to the White Star Line saying, oh, we hit an iceberg, but everybody's safe. It's going to be fine. And we're on our way to Halifax. And so passengers were asking around. They were asking officers on the ship, how bad is this? And the the officer, Charles Lightoller, you know, there are, there are documents saying he tried to cheer people up. He's like, oh, you know, it's not bad. It's just a precaution that we're having you put the boats in the water just in case it becomes an emergency. And it was it was very much downplayed at first. And because of that, there wasn't immediately 
a rush. You know, that panic didn't happen right away. Probably when, when people started to realize there was a problem, when the postal clerks saw water starting to come into the mail room, that was kind of the first red flag that like, oh, you know, maybe this isn't this isn't going all that well. And then they started to investigate the damage. The, the engineers knew that the Titanic could still float with up to four. It was built with these watertight compartments so that if one of them were breached, it should still be okay. And in fact, it should have been okay if four of those compartments were flooded. Once they discovered that six of them were flooded, then the captain knew what was going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, they knew the ship was going to sink. And that's when they really started to prepare for the worst. They started getting people on board the lifeboats. They started launching the lifeboats. One of the huge myths about the Titanic is that there weren't enough lifeboats, uh, mm -hmm. right? It is that they, they had somehow skirted the law right? They were breaking the law and they didn't have the required lifeboats. And that's actually not true at all. In those days, ships like that weren't required to have enough lifeboats for everybody. They just didn't anticipate needing to get everybody off a ship. And so the Titanic, even though there weren't enough lifeboats uh, for the all of the passengers, the Titanic actually had more lifeboats than were required by law. So that's another thing people don't realize. There's this, this idea that somehow they were skirting the law and, you know, being a little shifty about it. They actually exceeded what they were required to have. Yeah, you say in the book that the law, the regulations were based on the weight of the ship. And this is sort of the size of the ship. So if you're this, yeah. this size, this heavy, you need X number of lifeboats. The law is not based on, oh, the ship can carry this many people, therefore you need this many lifeboats. Which is just wild to think about, right? Mm. It's just so interesting It had that it has nothing to do with the number of passengers. And, and in fact, at the time, the law said that any ship weighing at least 10,000 tons had to have 16 lifeboats. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And the Titanic weighed way more than that, right? Mm. It was it was like 46,000 tons or something, but there was no difference in how many lifeboats were required. It was like over 10,000, it's this many lifeboats. No matter how much bigger the boat was, the law just really hadn't caught up with the shipbuilding industry yet. And that's probably why the Titanic had more than were required. They're like, well, we'll throw some extras on there. It it had 20 lifeboats. It was required to have, I think, 16. So that's, again, one of the myths. The law was the problem. It wasn't the Titanic was breaking the law. Yeah. And you point out that there are also all kinds of myths about the size of the lifeboats. You know, we get the impression from the movie that these are tiny little things, you know, that hold yeah. 10 people and stuff. They're not like that at all. No, no. There were different kinds of lifeboats. There were a few of them. The, the most common kind were just the regular wooden lifeboats and they could hold 65 passengers each. Yeah. Now, some of the Titanic lifeboats were launched before they were full. So they weren't at capacity when they were launched, but the, you know, the, the largest ones could hold 65 passengers each. If they were full, there were a couple that could hold 40 passengers each, you know, 45. There were some collapsibles, sort of the, the extras, if you will, that could hold, you know, 47 people each. 
so they weren't they weren't tiny ships at all. They weren't tiny boats at all. And it was one of the problems was that some of them ended up being launched before they were completely full. One of them got washed off the the ship before it could be launched. So uh, again, a perfect storm, if exactly. you will, a number of different things that went wrong that caused so few people to be able to be rescued. And then can we address the the sort of dual myth of women and children first, plus the myth that men dressed as women to get in lifeboats, you know, sort of surreptitiously? Yeah, I mean, there's, and this is, again, this is one of those myths that was kind of amplified by the movies. Mm. You know, it is true that that the Titanic's crew was ordered to lead the the women and children into lifeboats to start with them. But, you know, there were there were rumors that uh, one guy was snuck onto an early lifeboat disguised as a woman. His name is William Sloper. He's been kind of like vilified, you know, in some of these yeah, um, yeah. these dramatic portrayals. But that wasn't true at all. He was on one of the lifeboats, but he had been offered a seat because the women, you know, didn't want to go, you know, yeah. and that's that's another thing that happened early on. There were people who really believed they were safer on the, the ship, right? And, and that's understandable, right? You're mm. on this big, comfortable ship, you know, with fancy dining rooms and nice chairs and everything. And it's cold out, right? It's the North Atlantic. There's icebergs around. It doesn't feel like the safest thing to get in a much smaller ship and get lowered into the ocean in the dark. And so a lot of people, before they realize just how bad it was going to be, were like, yeah, I'm not doing that. Mm. You know, that doesn't seem like a good idea at all. So that's another reason that some of these lifeboats were launching before they were full, especially when they were saying, you know, women and children go ahead. And the women were like, yeah, I don't think so. So this poor guy who was vilified, there was a tabloid newspaper at the time that reported that he had disguised himself as a woman and snuck onto the ship, which wasn't true at all. He didn't sneak. He was offered a seat, literally, because they didn't want to launch these boats before they were full. Yeah. And there weren't women who wanted to go. And that's like, well, you go ahead, get on. But the poor guy spent, you know, the rest of his life trying to undo this this false tabloid story. Yeah, it's almost as if you'd want to change your name. Well, we should remind Buzzkillers that, you know, that the chances after the gash and after the impact, up on deck, people don't know that six compartments have flooded. And so I'm sure that a lot of people thought, well, the ship is going to list, but then remain basically afloat. So it'll be uncomfortable and it'll be, it'll be tilted and all that kind of stuff. But, but being on the ship, really did seem like a much safer and more comfortable option than being, as you say, first of all, it's in the dark. You're being put on a, on a relatively small lifeboat, lowered into the Atlantic Ocean, freezing. I probably would have said, well, my chances are better on the ship. Yeah. And, and, and the danger, you know, obviously they didn't want to panic. So they were walking this very fine line of trying to get people into these lifeboats, but also not completely, you know, lose control of the ship, which is, I don't know, it's it's interesting. It's, it's I don't know what I would have done. It's interesting to think about because it, again, it doesn't feel safe to get into this little bitty boat when you're on this big boat that still really seems okay. This was, you know, uh, after midnight, but before, before things really started to go south, so. Well, and maybe one of the biggest stories you address is who was able to survive, who was able to be rescued and and that can be determined by the class of person not not the class of their their per that they themselves but the the type of ticket they had a first class ticket a second class ticket a third class or what is often called steerage ticket there are an awful lot of 
miss about this, and and I don't remember miss about this arising from the movie and Night to Remember, but I certainly remember miss about this from the that terrible Leonardo DiCaprio, DiCaprio, whatever romantic Titanic story that all the third class passengers were locked right. in the hold and more or less condemned to death. Right. What was the story with? Who was able to survive? It, it is true that more of the first class passengers survived, right? And and uh, that was largely due to access because they were there. They were they were not below deck. But another issue, and and again, there were no gates. There were no locked gates keeping third class passengers below deck. That was, as you said, a real one of the real doozies of dramatic license with the movie Titanic. So those gates are a, are a myth. But there was a different sort of barrier that kept many of the Titanic's third class passengers from getting the information they needed, and that was a language barrier. You know, many of those passengers were immigrants. And those announcements about what people were supposed to do were being made in English. So yeah. they just, many of them weren't getting the information that they needed in a timely manner. And by the time it really became apparent what was going on, it was too late. It, it happened fast. And as you point out in the book, you know, they are down below in, in third class. And there were no gates, but it took a long time and it was, you know, complicated stairways right. and to get to deck. In order to be on the deck or near the deck, you had to pay a lot of money because those were those were sort of fashionable. They were nice sure. cabins. You could stroll out on the promenade and, in theory, play shuffleboard. I don't know if anybody did that sort of thing. But, you know, that cost a lot of money. So it, it wasn't the fact that there were gates locked or there were restrictions or people said no Irish on the lifeboats is that they were in a, literally a bad position. Who presumably also the crew, a lot of the crew were in, in very dangerous, ultimately dangerous quarters. Yep, very much so. Very much so. And some crew members did end up on lifeboats, you know, when it was getting late and they were having to launch boats quickly, they were putting whoever they could on those boats, whoever was nearby. And sometimes that was crew members, you know, and those survivors, those people who did make it into the lifeboats are why we have a lot of the information that we have about what actually happened on the Titanic. That's where a lot of those stories came from, from the, the writings of those people and the, the testimony they gave before the various committees that investigated the disaster. Yeah, let me just read out some stats here. First class passengers, 61% survived, 39% died. Second class passengers, only 42% survived and 58% died. And for third class passengers, it was grim. Yeah. 25% survived, 75% died. Yeah. So it is it is stark, but let's shift gears a little bit because you talk about this famous story of the good luck pig. This story has been turned into all sorts of things that there were lots of lots of pets on the Titanic that the, that the pets of first class passengers got privilege over people and all that sort of thing. Please tell us the real story of the good luck pig. Well, the good luck pig, I hate to disappoint anybody who is hoping for a real, um, you know, pig, you know, oinking along in one of those lifeboats. The good luck pig was actually a toy. So it was one of Titanic's survivors, a woman named Edith Rosenbaum, who supposedly refused to get into the lifeboat without this little music box that her mother gave her for good luck. And she had actually, this woman had actually survived a car crash that killed her fiance. And somehow her mother was like, ah, it's, this is the time for a good luck pig. So her mother gives her this good luck pig, which is a little music box. And this woman actually 
was anxious about the trip for reasons mm. who knows, right? Uh, before she left, she'd actually written a letter telling her secretary back home that she, you know, the ship is nice, but that she couldn't get over this feeling of depression and this this feeling that something bad was about to happen. So when this iceberg hit, she was one of those people who looked at those lifeboats and said, well, that doesn't look like a good idea at all. But one of the sailors grabbed this musical pig, supposedly, this music box, and tossed it into the lifeboat. And so she was like, my pig, and she followed it. Yeah. She decided to go in, and it did You know, turn out to be her lucky pig. There are stories about her comforting children in the lifeboat by making the pig play its, its little music tune. And so later, interestingly enough, the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich ended up getting its hands on this pig and fixed it to figure out, they figured out how it worked. You know, you, you actually wound the music box by twirling the, the, the curly tail on the pig. Mm -hmm. And so they were able to figure out what song was being played on the lifeboat that night. It was a, a, actually an old song called La Sorella, composed by Charles Borel Clare. Speaking of songs, and, and I want to use this as a segue to talking about the movies, which is my favorite thing to, to complain about. <laughs> what about this story of the ship's band playing Nearer My God to Thee, also of him, as the ship went down? Well, there is a lot of discussion about that. Let's start with the true part, okay? Okay. There okay. was a band on the ship, and really one of the most famous legends of the Titanic is the story of how these band members wouldn't go in the lifeboats, how they stayed on deck and they decided it was their job to play music as the ship went down, to calm people and keep the peace and just make this you know, horrific thing that was happening a little more bearable for the people who were leaving in the lifeboats and also the, for the people who were left behind. It is true that the band was playing that night. That's one of the things that when we look at documents, and this is something that I always come back to in the History Smashers books, whether we're talking about the American Revolution or the Pilgrims or Columbus or the Titanic, is what do the documents at that time say, right? If we have a myth, mm. we have to ask ourselves, what is the evidence that this myth is true, right? And sometimes there's no evidence at all. Sometimes it's a story some guy told 200 years later, right? That somebody just made up right. and they're like, oh, my great aunt Betsy told me this. But sometimes we have myths that actually are held up by the evidence. And that is the case with the story of the band playing on the night the Titanic went down. Witnesses, multiple survivors reported that they did hear the band playing as they left the ship in ice boats and even in the last moments before that ship sank. So that story of the band hanging in there to the, the very end, uh, at least until they couldn't you know, stand steady enough to play, seems to be true and is supported by, by witnesses who survived. But this uh, idea they were playing Nearer My God to Thee is the one that got picked up on by newspapers and of course ended up you know, in all the movies and everything. It did get reported in a newspaper that that was the hymn. However, the passenger who said the last song the band played was Near My God to Thee got off the ship before the band was done. So that might have been the last song that passenger heard, but it probably wasn't the last 
song of all. And the other thing that's interesting, I always tell kids when I talk about this is when we have myths that get circulated and repeated, we have to ask ourselves, well, why did this story get told over and over, even if the, you know, the evidence was shaky? And in this case, it's because, you know, that's a, a hymn and the lyrics fit the moment right? Mm, uh, the, mm. You know, we've got this song that says, uh, you know, though like the wanderer, the sun gone down, darkness be over me, my rest a stone, yet in my dreams I'd be nearer my God to thee, nearer my God to thee, nearer to thee. You know, so this is a, a prayer and it, it's very suitable. It's very fitting for what was happening. And our brains like a story, right? We love a story. Yeah, and so yeah, if it yeah, makes yeah, a good yeah. story, we tend to repeat that story because it's fun and we like that story, even if it's we haven't really checked to see if it's true. So that story really doesn't hold up because other passengers reported hearing other songs from the lifeboats. And that includes passengers who got off the ship later. Mm -hmm. uh, Charles Lighthaler, one of the officers, said he heard an upbeat tune, like a, a, yeah. a, a ragtime tune, sort of a, a cheery sort of jazz tune. Harold Bride said he heard some ragtime music. And then after he was swept off the ship with one of the collapsible lifeboats, he said he heard a song called Autumn, yeah. which also has some comforting lyrics. So we don't know. The, the reality is we don't know what the last song was, but it probably was not that that hymn, uh, just because the passenger who reported that left the ship before the band was done playing. Well, and also I've heard this said by people that, uh, and I think survivors said that, you know, it wasn't near my God to thee because that would have been in terrible taste. That would have been a almost well, extremely depressing sort of, you know, oh, we're all going to die sort of message for the band to be sending out. And that doesn't quite ring true that, that no band director in his right mind would, would, would do that. You would think, right? And that, that report, it, it, that did come from somebody who was on the ship. But again, it's one person, right? right and right, and right. you know, it's it's understandable that maybe your memory is a little a little foggy, right? This is a, a traumatic evening, and you know, him sound alike. So maybe he was like, "Oh, it was probably that one because it was a disaster." So we yeah. we just don't know. You know, we don't always have the answers, and that's what makes history interesting. But of course, that's in the movie A Night to Remember. So let's get on to the movies. Sure. The movies are are perhaps the worst myth creating entity in the world. Tell us which which myths about the Titanic appear in A Night to Remember and in Titanic that bug you the most. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, boy. There, um, there's so many. I will say probably one of the, the worst is the, that story about, well, the unsinkable thing is, is one thing. The, the idea that passengers were boarding and talking about how unsinkable the ship was, that just didn't happen. You know, they were talking about what they were going to eat in the fancy dining room. So that one bugs me. One of the other things that that's really noticeable is if you if you look at the movies, you would think that all of the passengers on the Titanic were white. And that wasn't true either. This was hmm. a more diverse ship than we, we know about if we're just relying on the movie. There were for sure many English and Irish people on board, but there were also dozens of passengers from Syria and Lebanon. And, you know, there was a black Haitian engineer who was leaving France with his family. So it actually was a much more diverse group of passengers than you would think if you only learned about the Titanic from watching movies. Well, Buzzkillers, there you have it. There's so much more to learn from reading the book. And I encourage all of you to go to the Buzzkill Bookshelf, 
look for History Smashers, the Titanic. And also, we'll put a link to the whole series. Because frankly, your original audience is supposed to be middle school students, but they're very intelligently written. They're not dumbed down at all. I liked reading them. I learned a lot. I learned a lot, especially reading the Underground Railroad one. So please, please, folks, don't think these are kids' books or kids-only books. They really are excellent for everyone. And it just remains for me to say thank you so much, Kate, for A, doing what I do, but doing it a lot better. And, I don't know about that. <laughs> and, and B, for coming on the show and telling us about it. Thank you so much for having me. I um, really appreciate the chance to chat with you and your audience. Buzzkillers out there, please remember what happens in the movies is all fake. And we'll talk to all of you next week. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs> 